Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Welcome uh, once again, and thank you for being here as we conclude our Winter Regional Conference. And uh, first time I went to a FGA conference last day, uh, the speaker sat up stage with a microphone and anyone from the audience could ask a question and uh, that's how we're concluding uh, this conference today and um, if we uh, could get our uh, men uh, take your seat on the stage and we have uh, hot mics up there uh, we heard from uh, Kenny Hodges this weekend he gave us an introduction to free grace theology and also he showed some research does free grace theology produce committed disciples and uh, we heard Charlie Bing, a deliver uh, surprise by grace and the gift and the prize and this morning moved by grace and we heard from Grant Hawley on growing together in grace and also handling conflict in the church and we heard from Bill Bogus God's grace creates gracious social relationships and uh, my topic would be on the subject of personal evangelism and witnessing and so you're you're interacting with this individual, and the person says something to the effect of this, that um, I'm basically a good person. Uh, I provide a nice, stable household for my family. I'm a productive member of society. I'm not a rebel rouser. I even give a little bit to the poor. And um, I'm basically pretty happy for the most part. And why do I need your Jesus that you're talking about? And I'd be interested to know how you would proceed uh, with the next step in that conversation, you know, I, I would I would say that I would start out by saying that the Bible I, I recognize good people. I, I don't think the, the because the world is sinful that it means all people are terrible people. There are some really good people, but the issue I would say is God's standard is not good; it's, it's perfect, and because of the fall, we now all fall short of God's glory. So my definition of sin is simply to miss the mark, and that you may be much better or more good than me. Uh, you might be able to throw a baseball to the street out there, but to be as, as good as God needs us to be, we'd have to throw a baseball around the world, and, and nobody can do that. So there's a standard that, that it's not really a relative of how good I am. It's do I have the right kind of goodness, or do I have the righteousness of God? And only he can give that to us. So that, that's usually where I would go with something like that. You guys may want to add something. Yeah, I'll just add that um, normally I, I don't do what people call pre-evangelism, where you, you, know, you preach the law first and then preach grace. I don't, I don't typically do that. But when I do find folks that don't really have a at least when, what they're saying is that they don't really have a, um, a, an understanding of their, their own guilt. Normally I'll ask a question about, you know, have you ever uh, done something that kept you up at night because you felt like you shouldn't have done it? Or I might say, you know, did you ever say anything that hurt somebody you love? And that usually gets people to think, yeah, I have done that. And at that time, you know, we can, we can start to talk about well, God's you know as Candy mentioned, God's standard is perfect, 
And so uh, we do need, we need payment for that. And Christ is that payment. And so that's, that's kind of how I might address that as well, in addition to what Kenny was saying. I, I go along with what Kenny said about the standard being perfection. I'd say, uh, you're going to die one day. You better get this right. You have, you know, you're gonna ha- you're gonna stand before God, and He's gonna say, "Are you perfect?" And you're gonna say, "Well, no, I'm not. I'm I'm trying to be good." He says, well, "That's not good enough." So, bye. You know, I mean, explain it to him like that. This is simple. You're not perfect. You're not gonna make it. You're gonna die someday. You better get this cleared up. You know, I, you're clearly not talking about it. Not even thinking about it. Thinking you're all right. You're gonna die. You're not all right, guy. You know, think about it. That's an evangelist talking. <laughs> we had almost that exact conversation last night while we were sitting at a bar. Eating. Eating at the bar. No, we sat next to the father of the third baseman from Long Beach that played state today. And he was the father of the third baseman. And uh, he started asking, you know, what, what are you guys doing in town? And so I answered, started answering the questions. And... Uh, what are you talking about? I told him what we're talking about. We've gotten to that conversation, though. He's, I'm happy. I, I put my life into my daughter and my son, you know, and uh, I don't, I don't feel I need anything. I, he wouldn't take my gospel track, but his daughter was listening and took it. She was really eager to learn. Then we saw him at the game and said hi to him. So, but I don't have anything to add to what they said. I just wanted you to know we were at the bar last night. <laughs> Ken, Kenny, since he left the church, is not the same guy. Now we we had hamburgers and. Cokes. The only seating we could find. Yeah, the, 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 the guy said, you can wait about an hour and a half or you could sit at the bar. I think there's four places at the bar. So we said, we'll take the bar. And there was two places, and this man and his daughter and two more places. And Charlie asked him, if, you know, if he would scoot down, we could have four together. And he did. But Charlie ended up sitting right next to him. So you, you knew eventually this conversation was going to take place. But he was along the line of what you said. He felt like, you know, I'm okay. I, I put my time into my children, and that's, my, that's kind of my goal in life. But he did keep saying, I, my purpose for them is just to walk a good, straight path. And, of course, I'm down there thinking, well, where are you getting the good, straight path from? How do you know what's a good, straight path? And I couldn't hear what all you were saying. Yeah, yeah, I, I know you couldn't hear it all, but he, he was saying, I, I just wanted him to be on the right path. And I said, well, how do you know what the right path is, you know, and... And I, I, whenever I would mention the Bible, I said, well, how can you believe something 2,000 years old? And I said, well, yeah, if it's true, it's true. Truth doesn't change. And he was saying truth, truth changes today, you know. Sex, people don't know what sex they are and you know, all this stuff. And I, well, that's, that's opinions, but that's not truth. And uh, I said, my truth is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, objective fact. And uh, he didn't really have an, an answer for that, you know. And I was trying to shake him from his... Uh, it was, I feel this, I feel this. And we don't know how many beers he had either. So we didn't, I, I didn't press the case too much with him. But um, we went out in the car, prayed for him, and prayed for him. His name's Leo. His daughter's name is Vinny, and she was listening to everything. She took the track. Uh, for many years, people have uh, believed and taught grace, uh, living without being associated with a named theology. Um, Nap Clark was one of those guys. Uh, I was one of those guys um, because I didn't really know what free grace theology was until I got to talking with Kenny in actually 2019. So as far as the name free grace theology, it's fairly new to me. Um, however, I have had arguments 
uh, with a former pastor of mine when we lived in North Mississippi. He, he was a very strong Calvinist. Holly and I would converse with him, and I remember him saying, you sound like free grace. I didn't have a clue what that meant. He just said, that's what it sounds like. So apparently I was been la- I've been labeled. Um, my question, is there a reason to subscribe to free grace theology rather than continuing to simply teach grace and grace living like so many have, have done before? Yeah, that's for me, I'm assuming is what you were saying. No, that's for Holly. Holly has- yeah, well, you mentioned my name. I'll, I'll take a stab at it first, but um, free grace theology is kind of a recent term. Um, you know, and when I go overseas and teach, I don't talk about free grace. I just talk about grace. But whenever you have a controversy going on, you sometimes have to clarify your terms. It used to be enough to say, for example, that the Bible is the Word of God. And then people started, then people started questioning that and redefining that so that you had to say the Bible was the inspired Word of God. Then you had to say the Bible is the verbal, plenary, uh, inspired Word of God. And you have to keep adding things to, to clarify what you're saying. And that's so, to say that we believe in grace, it's totally true, but it's not enough because everybody's got a different definition of grace. Cheap grace, costly grace, Roman Catholic grace, uh, all Mormons talk about grace, Jehovah's Witnesses talk about grace. So what do we mean? Calvinists talk about grace. We mean absolutely free grace. And it is a biblical term, as uh, I mentioned from Romans 3.24, we're justified freely by his grace. So there is a legitimate use of the term. And one interesting book I came across, um, I think it's titled Making Heretics. It's about the trial in 1637 in Boston, Massachusetts, where John Cotton was saying and, uh, and Ann Hutchison were saying that you can know that you're saved by faith in Christ. You don't have to show it or prove it by your works. And that just upset the whole Puritan community in the very beginning of our country. And the book's subtitle is called The Free Grace, Free Grace Controversy in uh, 17th Century or something like that. Making Heretics Free Grace Controversy. And they called it the Free Grace Controversy. So free grace is the label itself uh, is more recent, but it was used then. And free grace is a biblical term. And grace has always been under fire since it was first preached. So we just try to define it for people. When I go overseas, I don't talk about it uh, as free grace. I just talk about it as grace and explain what it means. Is that helpful? Yeah, for a while we were called the no lordship position which was totally untrue, so I like free grace a little better than that. Okay. I have a question, on be- a linguistic question, on behalf of some people from the college ministry here who aren't here. So we have heard some good arguments about using everlasting life instead of eternal life, and we're hoping to get y'all's thoughts on that. <laughs> so, yeah, the word, the word can be translated either one. Um, so it, I'm not sure how much um, it's a linguistic issue. It, it's, it's more of a theological issue. And to me, the difference would be whether your focus is on the fact that the life that we receive is um, everlasting in the sense that it never ends, or if your focus is on the fact that um, when we would say eternal, we would, think, we would look at both, 
both directions, backward and forward. And so if you say eternal, you're thinking of we receive the life of Christ, which has always been and will always be. Um, I, I, do, I do think that there's, there is a good case for saying everlasting life because there is the emphasis uh, that might um, bring out the concept of eternal security a little bit, which we are trying to help people to understand. And so uh, I can I can really see how either one could could be a benefit, depending on what you're trying to focus on. I don't know if that's helpful at all, but I'm really um, when it comes to Greek, I'm more of a grammar guy than I am uh, vocab. So I, um, I I don't know that I'm really the best person to. Comment well, I've I've heard the controversy. I don't know if it's a controversy. I've heard people trying to make a distinction. I never thought to make a distinction and i don't understand what the point of the distinction is so i'm i'm a little blank on it i think it's the same greek words i don't know you know you can translate either way i, I kind of agree that maybe everlasting would be a little better translated yeah. choice i don't know what it would work in french you know you, you know english is just one language and so when you think, uh, how's that translated? You know, you got to kind of think about other languages too. So, I, I so as a Gen Y slash millennial, depending on the flavor uh, that people decide to label me, um, when I've had conversation with people about um, the Bible, Christ, and stuff, most people in my age group more look into the utilitarian of. Christ and church and stuff, and not necessarily what they would probably consider it more abstract, you know, everlasting life. Who knows for them what the afterlife is, what it'll look like, even if the Bible describes it to us, not to them. So, how would you just use that as far as the utility of Christ, church, all, all of it? Finita. Yeah, so. You want to go, you no, go I was ahead. just going to say I'm not quite sure I understood the question. If you guys, un- yeah, I, I think the question you're asking is Maybe. that you know millennials are are really asking a kind of a different question. They're asking what they can get out of. Yeah, what what good is it? Um, I th- I think generally the the idea is what good is it to the world, right? I mean, uh, but you know, Scripture does very much address that question as well. Um, the whole book of James is about that. You know, what should your faith look like as you work it out and um so you can use that to bring people in you but you do have to change the message just a little bit not the content but the delivery and so you can you can talk about um the fact that when we receive everlasting life that we're also receiving the holy spirit who empowers us to do good works and so you can talk about how um how the uh, the holy spirit enables you to to be an effective servant for the good of others and if you if you if you explain it that way you certainly also need to bring in the gospel okay because people have to be saved in order to to have that but uh, if you're going to talk about it from that perspective you also need to be doing it Uh, your life has to match what you're saying and uh, and not just in the sense of Hey, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. It's the idea of um, I'm putting my faith to work in the sense that I'm using it to help people. 
um, in, in their situations. And that can look like feeding people and housing people and whatever you want to do with your time to, to help people, time and resources to help people out. But if you're doing that, that just draws more attention to the gospel. And so you, you do need a little bit, with the changing questions, you need a little bit of wisdom on how to address that. I'm, I'm a millennial too. Depend, well, it depends on which, you know, which you thing you, who you ask. I'm either, I'm either a Gen X or a millennial. I'm 40, uh, born in 81. And so, uh, you know, these things are, are, we do have to be aware that the questions are different now. I appreciate you bringing that up. Kenny, didn't you mention that in your talk? Uh, you had a term for it, more divine therapeutic. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Which, what I understood was the, the newer generations are looking to, to see what they can get out of. They believe in God, yeah. and they're looking to see what they can get out of it for their lives to be a happier yeah. person, but not so much with eternity in mind. Is that kind of where you were right. going with that? They have a vague idea of, of you want to be a good person. They want to be moralistic. And the Bible kind of gives you some moralistic codes. And there's a God out there. There's, it's not necessarily personal, but he's deistic. But he's there to help you out when you need it. He's therapeutic. And, and, and it's not really, you know, they're not really asking the question so much of, how do I know I'm his child? How do I have eternal life? And how can I live my life to glorify him? It's more focused on themselves. And that was part of our conversation with our our bar buddy last night. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was saying, 18-year-olds, they don't care about anything. They don't care about eternity. They're not thinking. They're just having fun. And I agreed with them. Yeah, I was having fun. When I was 18, I was partying it up until my best friend died. <laughs> you know, so I think part of the answer is to get them to know, hey, you know what? You're not going to live forever, and teenagers do die. Young people do die, uh, not just gray-haired people. Um, and that kind of shook my world and got me going in a different direction until the, I was, it opened me up to the gospel, and I was saved about a year later. It's, it's interesting, though. I'm uh, sorry, Kenny. Um, it's interesting, though, when he was saying that, that young people don't care, they, and then he turns to his daughter, who's 18 years old, and he says to her, like, do you ever think about that, or do you, do you care? And she says, yeah, I think about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be different one person to another. And when we look at that, uh, you know, the uh, moralistic, deistic, ther or therapeutic deism, that, that's, not, that's not what I find among Christians or people who are really seeking Christ. Um, that's really just more the, the secular viewpoint. Um, but when I see young people who are seeking Christ now, what I'm seeing is people who want to make a difference in the world. They want to, they want their life to have a positive impact. And that's an, that's an important thing that we can use, um, for its own good, because it's a good thing already. But in addition to that, it can also be an avenue for people to understand and believe the gospel if we use it properly. I think. For millennials, they're they're looking at the church, the, you know, the evangelical church today, and they don't really see they don't see what good it is. I mean, it's because um, in a lot of ways, the evangelical church has not been sympathetic to the poor or the oppressed. Uh, has always been tried to defend uh, certain positions that um, you know. <coughs> This is my country, and I want to protect it, and we're losing our rights and that kind of thing. And that's what they see, and they don't like it. My kids, I have two. Well, I have three kids that are millennials, I guess. And 
You know, they want to see a church filled with people who are full of joy, full of peace, and that are working for a better world, social justice, and that kind of thing. Now, you know, that's, uh, that's not our calling. We weren't called to go in the world and install sanitary sewers. On the other hand, we are called to be salt and light, salt and light in this world. And I don't know if we have been in the last few years, at least in America, um, the solidarity, the, uh, the uh, sympathy, the empathy, uh, in a lot of cases is missing. Uh, we don't root for the underdog. If a woman uh, has children out of wedlock, it uh, was her fault. And uh, I'm not going to try to help her. She needs to help herself. You know, um, where's the grace? That's what I think the millennials would like to see grace in uh, in these cases. And you know, talked about this afternoon about um, picking up uh, an illegal alien uh, uh, resident coming into France and kept her for a long time and have been have been helping her and working with her for eight years now. I think, and that's what they want to see. They want to see the love of Christ manifested in a visible way where it, it does change the world now it's not going to change the whole world but it's like the like the starfish boy the boy is throwing the starfish back into the ocean the man says hey you know you're not going to make any difference there's look at all these starfish he's what made a difference for that one he throws it into the water you know they can see that the world can see that and i think that's one thing we need to we need to do better job we're i mean we've been pardoned we've been so we've been smothered with grace and we need to we need to extend that grace out into the world in a real practical visible way you know i doubt we're going to change the the way our governments are going and things like that but we can we can do what we can do on our own little basis you know i know there i know a lot of you probably give seriously to food banks and uh orphanages or different things like that and that's good that's what we need to be doing need to be uh need to be done um that need to be done to be seen you know otherwise you get your you know you get your applause right now and that's the end of it but if we if we did it i know that it it pleased the lord there's too much in the bible about social justice and the poor and the oppressed uh, and the immigrant i i know there's uh, that we're not pleasing the lord like we could especially for us who are people of grace yeah, and if we don't, we're going to lose the next generations. Oh, we are absolutely lost them so far. Yeah, we we have. They're we, gone. If, if we're going to win them back, then um, we've got to be more active in doing actual good in our communities. Um, beyond just you know sharing the gospel is is a good thing. Okay, I, I don't don't get me wrong at all, but uh, we have to couple it yeah. with good works if we want our message to be effective. And again, not to be seen like you're saying, but um, to bring credibility to the message. I must be shorter than Daniel. <laughs> so is everybody else, I think. Uh, to bring up a question I had, i give you a little, little background. One of the very effective things Kenny did when he started working on his degree, would he would, I saw his reading list one time, the books he had to read it write a report on it but he would share those with the elders and we would each be in charge of uh, one week's uh, meeting we'd take a chapter each sometimes chapter would require more than that but anyway that was a useful thing and right now there's a young man in our church uh, asked me about uh, meeting with him you know and 
So we've been doing that several months, and uh, we go through, uh, we're going through Greg, I believe it's Greg Kukul's book on tactics now. And anyway, Brent is the age of my grandchildren. But it's amazing, you know, when you have an eager young person who's smart and who has a desire to be in the Word and study the Word is uh, that eager. And what surprises me after uh, I've been a believer in this 70 or 75 years, I don't know exactly when I was saved, but uh, in a church that taught salvation by grace through faith, which uh, very pleased about that. But anyway, some questions come up in, uh, in this book we're reading on tactics. I can see where in my early adulthood I broke all the rules when I had a chance to witness somebody. And so we got in a discussion week so ago, Brent and I did, is it possible God could, uh, that his word is so powerful that you could have made a lot of mistakes back then and the word would still bear fruit. Uh, verse in Isaiah, my word will not return to me void, but will uh, accomplish that for which I sent it. That's no excuse for ignorance or uh, not doing a good job and not learning. And, uh, but I recall an incident one time I was on, uh, many years ago, I was on an airplane and I was in the middle seat and this guy next to me on the right and I sort of brought up the subject of church and do you go to church, you know, and he goes to church that uh, we'd say just a long list of works you have to do. And so I started giving him verses of scripture and, uh, I kept on, and he'd give me a few, but I, I won out. I had he ran out of verses before I did, and I was feeling kind of proud, you know. And I noticed uh, he wasn't looking at me anymore; he was staring out the window. So I told Brent later, as I thought about it, what I did was just beat him down, and I'm sure he didn't have any kind thoughts to me at all. But there's no excuse after you learn better. Uh, to listen, ask the other person some questions, and uh, you'd like to at least uh, leave him with good thoughts towards you. But my question is, is any of the things we have done in the past in ignorance, if we use some scripture, is it still, can it still do something? He, he may not like me, but maybe he'll remember some of the verses. That's not a, that's not the, desired way to be a witness but uh just in case i just wonder did i totally waste my time or did i damage his his lookout for his whole life i hope not did i told the story did i tell it yesterday about the young lady who was in the mental ward because she wanted to commit suicide her parents asked me to visit her and i visited her and i shared the gospel i told that story yesterday right yes. right on the safe page there so I, you know, I forget exactly what I said to her, but back in those days, I was discipled by a guy that used Campus Crusade materials. So I'm reading, she, I'm reading this email now, 43 years later. She said, yeah, you drew a picture of a little chair and with arrows pointing to it. 
Now, that, if you're familiar with what I'm talking about, that's the Campus Crusade Four Spiritual Laws illustration about making Jesus the putting Him on the throne of your life, which is basically a Lordship salvation message. And that's what I that's what I told her, <laughs> and that's what I wrote my doctoral dissertation against. So <clears throat> she got saved anyway, my friend. She got saved anyway. God can. God, she remembered what God wanted her to remember, and or whatever else somebody else put into her later. Maybe it was just the fact that I cared enough to be there that that she listened to someone else later and got the right right the gospel a little clearer than what I shared with her that night. But when I read that in the email two months ago, I said, "Oh my gosh, did I did I really share the gospel that way?" But that's the, that's what we were trained to do with the four spiritual laws. So that's what I did, and you know. God uses imperfect people, and uh, we don't have to say it exactly right. We try to, but God is God. He can save people in spite of us. I would dare say there are a lot of people here that trusted Christ as a child, probably on something like Ask Jesus in Your Heart or, you know, something like that. And, and that's not necessarily terribly theologically wrong, but the the verse in Revelation is not talking to unbelievers; it's talking to believers. But, but you know, they they got the message that they needed Jesus, and they believed. And so, God's the one that that works through the drawing of His Spirit, and 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 He knows. You know, childlike faith is always lauded in the Scripture. Let the little ones come to me, for such are the kingdom of of God. So, I think, you know. I'm, I'm as free grace as you can get. I'm as straight on, try to be as clear on the gospel as you can possibly be. But on the other side of that, God's the one who saves people. It's faith in Jesus, not my, necessarily my, I say it all the correct exact way. Does that make sense? It's not an excuse to have a, a muddy gospel, but it's just to realize that sometimes it's, it's, they hear a word or two of what you're saying, and later on that seed is blossoms with somebody else even. so. In France, they have a, they've done some statistics that a person that comes to Christ in France has to hear a full, complete explanation of the gospel seven and a half times. I think that's you know, it's interesting. So uh, you certainly some of those are not going to be that, that clear, but they make, you know, cover one point here and another guy covers a point here. And it, so they kind of sound like a pinball machine. Bang, 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 bang. Whew, it went down. Hey, you know, it's good. So I, we always heard, oh, they went to a camp. They went to a concert. There's somebody talked to them. So I owe somebody, they met somebody on the train reading the Bible. Never seen that before. Ask them a question. And, and then they bounce around and then finally they get saved. I think it's interesting to half, though. You know, I wish it, I'm halfway getting through with my conversation. And then they, it's eight, that's seven. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> well, actually, yeah. No, it's seven and a half. <laughs> yeah, Peter at Cornelius's house, right? He was still still given the gospel when they believed and yeah. never saved. But that's kind of interesting. I um, I guess I understood the question just a little differently. Um, I was thinking that the question was more about like if you've shared the gospel with people, but maybe the relationship wasn't very good. Is that? Is that what you meant? There's, or? there's no doubt in my mind that that happens all the time. Um, there are so many muddy gospel presentations out there, and people are still getting saved. Like um, the Holy Spirit is working, and you can mess up your gospel presentation. You can be a bad example of um, how to live out the gospel. 
there's so many things that you can do wrong and still God is able to, to be effective with that. God has always used flawed people. Uh, you know, Moses killed somebody. Uh, David killed somebody and acted really, did also other bad things. Um, you know, um, that could be controversial. I'm not going to get into that. Um, <laughs> so uh, Peter denied Christ three times on the night of his crucifixion. Um, like these are deep, deep, very, very bad things, right? And um, and yet God used those people all extremely mightily. And so, I mean, God even used Judas's evil act of betraying Christ to deliver the whole world. He can do He can do so much with our mistakes and and everything. It, the way, that's the way I take Ephesians one eleven when it says that that God's working in all things bring about his will or working his will in all things. And I, I don't think that means that God is the cause of everything, but the fact, the fact is that, that whatever is going on, God is using it and working it for good. Just like he did with Joseph, his brothers, um, beat him, sold him into slavery, told his dad that, um, he was eaten by a wild animal and God used that to deliver alive many, many, many people because Joseph was there to help the Pharaoh prepare for the famine that was coming. And so, um, so you know, Joseph turns that back to glorify God and says, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so God is always at work through our mistakes and through everything, and he, he bears fruit through our uh, poor efforts all the time. He even bears fruit through the things that we're not we're not even doing, we're not even trying to do the right thing. But he still works good out of it. Speaking of putting in terms of tactics, um, I'll just you again, our, our encounter last night, I was sharing the facts of the gospel with him uh, about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and salvation through, by faith alone. I don't think he was really grasping it. At one point I said, look, and he said, you know, I try to do good. And so I, I, I said, well, let me show you something like pulled out my thing and I turned to the Bible and you could almost see him recoil. Like he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to listen to that. And he wouldn't give me, he wouldn't turn the conversation back to me. Here's my tactic when, when people have reached that point. And it goes back to the very first time I witnessed to somebody uh, and I couldn't answer their questions. And he was asking all this stuff. And I said, look, okay, I don't know. All I can tell you is my life has changed. And that's pretty much what I did with them last night. Uh, I said, look, I tell you what, when I was 18 years old, I didn't, and my friend died, I didn't, I started thinking about what would happen if I died, and I didn't know if I was going to heaven or hell, I didn't know, uh, I didn't feel like I had any purpose in life, and then somebody explained this gospel message to me, and I, over a course of time in reading Bible verses, I was convinced that it was true, and I believed in Jesus, my life has changed since then. Nobody can argue against your personal testimony. So, as a, as a tactic, I, I resort to my personal testimony if people aren't listening to anything else. And they can't argue with it. They can't argue with it. I think of Paul's words in uh, Philippians where he says, Some preach Christ from envy and strife, some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice. Well, you know, I don't know what these guys who are doing it out of selfish ambition and motive are, but I, I suspect their gospel is not the best or purest in the world. But somehow God's taking the message of Christ and using it even with, with that. So I, I know that's not what you're asking, but I, I'm, just, I, I'm agreeing with these guys that, you know, God can take. I remember Knapp's testimony, and Knapp was so clear on the gospel that he was sitting on a rock on the side of a mountain in Colorado seeking Jesus, and the guy walked by, and Knapp said, what do I need to do? And his, his, his words to him were, you get to Jesus and you'll be all right. And he got to Jesus. He was all right. And we're all here because of that. Gerald, I bet you you prayed for that guy a lot. So I bet you, you know, even if you were trying to, you know, be a little bit on him, you know, and a little bit harsh with it and wanting to win the argument, but you've been praying for him for a long time. It's still bothering you. So, <laughs> you know, I, I probably any error you made has been way offset by all the prayers over the time since then. Gentlemen, I've enjoyed your talks this weekend and appreciate y'all's efforts and effort. Um, Somewhat, the biggest thing is Daniel said, I think it was him a while ago, was talking about the first time he heard the term free grace and, and relatively new, and, and we've talked about the other iterations that growing up in the, <clears throat> the uh, South, I guess, in the Southern Baptist Church, like most, most of us did, what we're exposed to. But what is the one thing that has interested me, uh, or, and I think about a lot, in, is the, since we started talking about this, was the one of the pillars, I think you did the pillars, uh, uh, the one on gifts, I mean, I'm sorry, on reward, doing things for reward, which is, and I think I told Kenny this one time when, when he was still here, which is to do it for a reward seems to be the furthest thing N nobody ever said other than you read it and it talks about for the reward, but to actually do it too for the purpose of that, so to speak. Uh, so just, uh, did y'all, is, is, that, is that common to other people too, or is that just, something unique to me as far as trying to understand that. So just like to hear y'all's thoughts. I, I think that's a common thing. My wife, she'd always say, I'm not doing it for the rewards, but Jesus set up rewards for us. He said to go search for them. He said to, 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 you know, to put them away, get the treasures, go for it. And if he said to do it, we're supposed to be doing it. Uh, you know, then, then there's the idea of um, Moses. He, he did what he did. He gave up the, you know, being the son of Pharaoh's daughter because of the, because of the rewards. So we should be doing that it's when we're commanded to do it. Secondly, it's a grace given to us. I mean, and, and then there's the whole position, uh, you know, God is looking for faithful people to serve him in the millennium and probably all the way through eternity in special positions of authority. And we're, and he wants to pick out the very best he can get, you know, of the people that are going to be the most faithful and he'll put them in these faithful positions. Or well, what if we're just sitting around, Oh, I'm not going to go for any reward. And then, and, you know, and then he, he won't go for you. You know, he's looking for faithful people. So I don't know. That's the kind of practical side of it. I guess. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, it's really good. Um, in addition to that, though, if, if you look through Scripture at the various appeals to seek reward as a motivation or to have reward as a motivation, they always come uh, in the midst of great difficulty. It's when people are suffering or 
being persecuted or um, just without going without basic needs that the subject of rewards comes up. And I think that I've found that in my own life, rewards are not much of a motivation except for those times when I'm really going through a hard time. And when I'm, when I've been, you know, I've had some, I've had some really difficult times in my Christian life and I've had, um, I've had, I've suffered at the hands of other Christians usually, um, mostly because of free grace. I've got a friend that says, if you're, if you tell me your free grace, I ask you to show me your scars because, uh, if you're free grace, you're going to get beat up. And so I, I've found that when I am having those really difficult times and I'm, I'm going through it, that's, that's when I can look at, at this, the doctrine of rewards. And I think, okay, justice is going to happen. God is going to make it right in the end and not only right, but much more than right. And so all this suffering is worth it. That's, that's when it, that's when it matters to me. I look at the history of the church and how many martyrs there have been all through the centuries. They're going to get vindicated one day. You know, the rewards are going to be there for these people and they will be vindicated. The justice will be done. And that's important to know. You know, you say it will be worth it all when we see Jesus and that rewards is in there. It is there. And again, it's commanded. We can't, it's just not optional. Yeah. For a motivational aspect to me too, I think of the parable of the talents. Two of them doubled them. One of them just hit it in the ground. And when his master came back, he was very displeased with him. And so one of the motivations to me, I see part of rewards and crowns, wherever you think those are, is that there's going to come a time when you present those back to Jesus. They're, they're, they're not, I think he does reward us. I think he does in the kingdom do things. But for me, the motivation is I want to stand before him and say, I took what I had in my life that you gave me, and I tried to use it, and I want to, you know, give it back to you. And if you take the 24 elders in Revelation as as believers, which I think they are, they're they're casting down their crowns at the feet of Jesus. So, it, to me, it's a motivation not simply for, you know, what what I'm going to get out of it. And I think God is going to bless believers that that serve Him, but for wanting to please the Lord and give back to him too. Yeah, I would just add all those thoughts I agree with. Um, if God is happy to give us rewards, who are we to say that we shouldn't be concerned about them? But to be honest with you, I know that the reward is a very clear doctrine in the scriptures, and I, some of them are like ruling in the kingdom with him and, and having certain positions are clear. But you know what? When Jesus says lay up treasures in heaven, what are that? What is that? He doesn't define that, but I know it's going to be good. Is that Bitcoin? What is it? But I know it's going to be good, and that's enough for me. And, and what, what they're saying, what I heard them saying, and what I also believe is, to me, rewards are not the primary motive that drives me in my Christian life. The primary motive is what we, I talked about this morning, is the love for God and gratitude for what he's done for me. And if God, I can't figure out if I'm going to lose rewards because of some of the things I did and gain some because of, that's not my concern. Paul said, I can't even judge myself, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, you're trying to judge me. I don't even judge myself. I'm going to wait for that day and let the Lord judge me. And that's how I feel about it. I think I'll get some rewards. I think I'm going to lose some rewards. But what, what Grant was saying is it's a consolation to me what 
somebody also said, it's going to be worth it. That's what rewards, the message of rewards is to me today. Just trust me, God says, it's going to be worth it. No matter what you go through, if you're faithful, it'll be worth it to you. I can't explain exactly what that will be sometimes. You know, how many Christians are just pew potatoes? You know, they don't do much. They just sit in the pew like on you know, a couch potato. Where we have pew potatoes in our churches. They're not going to get very many rewards. Uh, people say, well, what about me? I worked real hard. Well, if you work real hard, you'll get the rewards, if you do it with the right attitude, obviously. But, again, it's, it's commanded, lay up treasures in heaven, he said. And it's, we do not have an option on this. We cannot... Uh, say, well, I don't want it, or I'm, I'm not want to, want to be motivated by this. I'm sorry, you don't have. To, you have, if you want to be an obedient Christian, you have to go for it. <laughs> he, it, it. He wants to reward those that work harder for him and that are more faithful to him. He wants to, and it's only fair. Okay, grace is for everybody. We want grace for everybody. You know, I mean, no, we really want grace for us, and then justice for everyone else. But everybody gets grace. <laughs> but then when it comes to rewards. It's, it's really not as, as much grace. I mean, it's gracious that he did it. He didn't have to give us any, but he decides to give it to us for those that are harder working. And, you know, they're, they're earned. They're merited. And it's just, it's just fair and just that he give the ones that have worked hard a reward. It just is. I, I love reward. They, they motivate me. I would like to be the guy sitting right next to Jesus on his right hand. Kenny can, Kenny can sit on the left. I don't want to be on the right. I, I, you know, let's go for it. Well, yeah, I, I know. I'm just teasing. But that's the, that's the point. That's the point. He really wants us to be faithful. And this is one way to encourage us to be faithful to him. And it is a, a, a question of are we, are, are we going to be faithful? Yeah, it's not the only motivation. I've got an article that's on my right. website where I list five motivations, love, gratitude, eternal significance. Hebrews uses warnings and punishment. Mm-hmm. or discipline, if you want to call it that, um, as, a, as a motivation. So that's a legitimate motivation. And rewards is, is another one. So which one drives you the most? And if I had to put them in order, it would be love and gratitude at the top and, and punishment or God's wrath at the bottom. But Hebrews makes it a legitimate motivation. And he, Hebrews uses almost you know, all of those motivations in the letter. He's very clever. I think God must have written it, but uh, he's the author after all. Yeah, because he uses uh, instruction and he uses warning. He mixes the, the rewards in with, you know, he, he appeals in every way he can to motivate those believers forward. This is going so well, I hate to ask this question, but can we ask anything you said? I don't know how you can turn this into a great answer, but uh, on the other side of dispensational, theology would you tell us everything you know about covenant theology the starting where it came from all this kind of stuff but but really where does it take us to what what is the end result what's the outcome of covenant theology is it good is it bad is it terrible belief system just tell me real quickly so i kind of wrote a book about that it's called dispensationalism and free grace intimately linked and it's like three dollars on kindle i do get a check for it but it's like very little and it shows up about once every three years <laughs> so um i can take my wife out to dinner <laughs> so you know th- this isn't a money thing i just um i do think i think it's an important subject 
And uh, in the book, I'm arguing that historically, theologically, and hermeneutically, that dispensationalism helps people get to free grace theology. And um, covenant theology is a little bit, it's interesting because uh, in the Reformation, they didn't have what's called a biblical theology. Biblical theology is different. It's a, it's, um, when we say biblical theology, a lot of times we, people think we mean theology that is biblical. But really what it means is more what is the theology about the Bible. And um, dispensationalism is what I would call a narrative biblical theology. It's a biblical theology that tells you the narrative of the Bible. And covenant theology is a different narrative biblical theology. And there was, there was no biblical theology in existence when the Reformation happened. It just wasn't a thing. Like nobody had ever systematized any biblical theology. And so we had the Reformation where they came up with all these doctrines that had to do with um, salvation primarily. That's, those are the, when people thought about theology at the time, soteriology was the main thing they were thinking about during the Reformation. And so when you know, people talk about Calvinism as the, you know, it's the, it's the full, the, some people talk about it as if it's the full Christian thought and doctrine. It has nothing to do with anything. Well, it does, but it's primarily about soteriology. And there's nothing in there about Israel. There's nothing in there about a ton of things that matter. There's no ecclesiology, doctrine about the church. And so um, what, what somebody did, um, and you, know, you can ask different people who it was. It wasn't, it was, I can't remember the guy's name, but somebody um, came up with covenant theology as a biblical theology that allows and explains scripture from a Calvinistic viewpoint. And it started with, there's, um, there's a, an aspect of covenant theology that um, is very common among, it's not, not all covenant theologians are amillennial, but most are. And so covenant theology adopted that, but it, it did something else. What it did was, um, when we talk about covenant theology, we might think, we're, well, you're talking about the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. We're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, either two or three, depending on who you ask, covenants that are extra biblical and that happened in eternity past. And the covenants are um, between God and Christ. And basically the idea is that um, that uh, the covenant of works is that if if you do good works and you obey my standard, you're going to go to heaven. And then the second covenant is either the covenant of, well, normally it's called the covenant of redemption, but um, or sometimes the covenant of grace. And what they're doing is is saying that God made a covenant with Christ that he would obey and die, and in exchange he would receive the elect as his inheritance. Okay, so it was, it's a covenant that is not found anywhere in Scripture, but that is said to be between God and Christ before creation was ordained. Okay, and so what they've done then is, is um, establish the first three chapters of Genesis as being under this covenant of works, 
And then the whole rest of the scripture is under this covenant of grace. And so they've, they've really limited it to two sections. Okay. And the first saved person after the fall was in their view, part of the church. And so God at that point through the Mosaic law and everything was building the church. And that's all grace in their view. There's, they don't make a really grace law distinction in the same way that, that we might. And of course, uh, the law was given as a, as an act of grace. There's a great talk on that from uh, Dr. David Allen from, uh, the, the FGA conference recently. I can't remember. Was it this, this last year or the year, year before last year? It's online. Yeah, you can get it at FGA's YouTube page. Uh, but, but basically, it, it creates all kinds of problems because um, you end up with all these uh, passages. Everything from Genesis 3 on is said to, tell, to, said to be to tell people how to get saved. And so when you read a passage about discipleship, their assumption is that it's about how to be saved. And when they read a passage that's about the about rewards, they assume that that's about how to be saved. And so it's read into all of it. So it creates bad problems with theology. But we also, I, I personally, I'm biblical theology is really important to me, uh, more so than um, systematic theology, because I think you need your your biblical theology and you build your systematic theology on top of it. And systematic is where you have things like. Um, like anthropology and theology proper and soteriology and all those ologies that we talk about most of the time, all these doctrines, but it needs to be based on a systematic theology, but what they, they did it completely backwards. They had their systematic and they're like, okay, let's create a biblical theology that fits it. It's totally backwards. And that's why the gospel gets so messed up under covenant theology. An example or two of that, <clears throat> I had to write a paper on progressive covenantalism when I was doing my doctorate, but that's why uh, in, in, in Israel, circumcision was the sign of entering into the covenant relationship with God. Well, if, if the church and Israel are morphed together, now baptism becomes that sign of entering into the so when that's why many of the reformers kept baptizing babies because they were covenant had this covenant idea, and so when a baby is baptized, he's now a member of the church. But the problem is when he grows up and doesn't stay in the church or believe in church. Not you, you've created all these scenarios, like Grant was saying, that that make absolutely no sense. And, and but then but then they'll say, well, that's the sheep and the goats. But I thought you baptized that goat, and I thought I, I thought he was. But anyway, there, there's just a lot lot of issues with covenant theology, and like Grant said, that there's there are three additional covenants or two, whoever you're talking to, you can't find them in Scripture. Now, dispensationalism believes in covenant theology. We believe in the Abrahamic covenant and all you know, new covenant and Davidic covenant, all those things. But but those are biblical covenants. So. Good answer, though. He's obviously studied yeah. that quite a bit. I didn't. I didn't understand. Uh, I mean, I understand what you said, but I, I didn't. I don't. I'm not that strong on that. What I do see, though, is like Presbyterians are covenant theologians, but most of them, they're just in their daily walk. They're most like us. Uh, when they baptize a baby, it's not to save the baby. It's to basically present the baby. I mean, yeah, they say they're part of this community. It's not. They're not that. It, it doesn't come out to be 
that big a thing for your average uh, church member. So don't be thinking, oh yeah, well these are really messed up believers because they're Presbyterian, which would make them come at theologians. That make they're not that theolo- theological. A lot of the- a lot of times we're glad that people aren't quite as theological as you know as we are. Sometimes <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> The person in the pew that follows the tradition yeah. is not as astute on all that. What's going on right. is, you know, we. I mean, we we have baby dedications at our church. What, yeah. what we're saying is, we're dedicating ourselves to raise them up and present the gospel to them at the right time, so that they'll maybe put their faith in Christ. We're not dedicating them to saying that they're we're whatever our little ceremony is saves them or anything like that. Then on the other hand, in the Catholic Church or maybe even the Lutheran Church, you baptize a baby and he's saved. He's part of God's family from that. So that's called baptismal regeneration, uh, when they, especially when they talk about infant baptism in those churches. So you got to make a distinction between, say, somebody from a covenant church like Presbyterian who baptizes a baby, but he's not saved. He's still got to believe in Christ when he gets to be old enough. Uh, Catholic Church, he's saved once he's baptized. And if you're not baptized, not. I think my mom, I strongly suspect, because I was Catholic, I strongly suspect she baptized my uh, oldest son in the bathtub one time because she knew I wasn't going to do it. But, you know, she thought she was doing the right thing because if, if he died, he'd go to limbo if he wasn't baptized yet. You know. Yeah, just a little bit more on all this. It, it's really interesting when you read the various books on lordship salvation that are arguing in favor of lordship salvation most of them are are tearing into dispensationalism they just they um and if you read a book on dispensationalism what they're arguing against is free grace because uh the lordship guys see that there's a connection and even even john MacArthur, who he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist um he he in his book uh, the gospel according to jesus he over and over and over and over again rips dispensationalism. He has one paragraph where he speaks kind of positively of it, and then he rips it the very next one too. And he just tears into um, uh, Lewis Perry Chaper and Charles Ryrie and, and and other dispensationalists for um, for what for basically teaching that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works without contradiction. And he does quote one. Uh, dispensationalist favorably only one in the whole book every other person he quotes that is supposed to argue for in favor of lordship salvation they're all non-dispensationalists they're all all covenant theologians and the one he quotes isn't the quote isn't in favor of lordship salvation it's it's a quote from ironside and it was it's totally consistent with free grace it was just him talking about how people need to be obedient and so uh, there is a connection you you don't have to be dispensationalist to be free grace um, and some dispensationalists are not free grace, but I'll tell you, if you're not, if you are a dispensationalist and you're not free grace, there's somewhere there's an inconsistency. There's 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 something out of whack somewhere. Yeah, Doctor Anderson would say the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. Who would say what? What's the most misunderstood verse in the Bible? You think? That's a good one. He says there's one even worse than that. Matthew twenty four thirteen. He who endures to the end will be saved. Well, Augustine switched from dispensational understanding of the Scripture to an amillennial understanding of the Scripture. And when he did that, 
Matthew 24 could no longer be talking about the tribulation period, so that verse became a justification verse. And so perseverance to, of the saints, enduring to the end now, if you change one aspect of theology in your spreadsheet, it's going to affect the, the others. And that's what happened there. A few minutes ago, Grant was talking about <clears throat> biblical theology. Just Here's what that is. Say you study the book of John, and then you read, and then the apostles of John, you say, okay, that is the theology of John. Then you read all the Pauline epistles, and you say, that's the, the, the theology of Paul. And then you can look at that and say, okay, when John's talking about salvation, he's using this terminology, and he uses it this way, and he emphasizes this, and Paul does this, and this. And then from there, you build your systematic theology to say, all right, salvation Paul tells us that salvation is this. John says this, and let's put this together, and they come up with systematic theology. Okay. Um, the problem I have with John MacArthur, who was one of the main guys who started the, the Lordship Salvation, or maybe the first one who really popularized it, he is horrible on biblical theology. He'll take a verse from Matthew and stick it with something that Paul said in a complete different context, and he'll say, See? This, and the Bible teaches it. He, he, he doesn't do good biblical theology before he does his systematic. He just mixes it all together at the top and comes up with this, this stuff that's the strangest. Sometimes he's great. I mean, honestly, the guy, sometimes he's fabulous, but sometimes he's really, 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 really bad. And that's where he's the worst at it uh, because I think he has really not very, very bad biblical theology uh, he just goes jumps from exegesis into his systematic theology without saying okay john says it this way paul says it that way matthew says it this way then you got to put it all together and think about it and synthesize it and he just doesn't do that and i'm i'm assuming that a lot of the other guys aren't either am i am i fair no yeah absolutely and and i would say that that's intentional on his part because okay. he um he's not doing it He's not doing it in a sloppy way. He's doing it in a way that's consistent with his leaky dispensationalism. It's, um, and he actually very specifically calls out dispensationalism for our, um, our being particular about keeping things in, in very different contexts and understanding like the synoptics are not written to tell people how to have everlasting life and things like that. They like, he, he rips, the way that uh, these distinctions, he says they're, they're overdone. So. I teach African pastors um, so that they can be better pastors and stuff. And one of the courses that I teach him is a Bible study methods course that comes from uh, Danny Hayes, who is a friend of mine at seminary. And Danny read, wrote a very, very, the best book I've ever seen on Bible study methods. It's called Grasping God's Truth. Danny was classmates with me at, at Dallas. Did you know Danny? Danny Hayes. Okay, well. Uh, one of the things he emphasizes, and I, I bring this out all the time to my African guys, is you've got to um, let the scriptures really, really, really talk to to you, and come from where they're what they're saying. I, I have a friend in in uh, Saint Augustine, and she is a believer, but she we're talking about um, proverbs the other day, and I said, now these are proverbs, and they tell you how life normally is, and. Uh, the problem is when people take them as promises, uh, then they can get really confused. You have to take, let the scriptures teach you. Say, no, 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 it's the words of God. It's a promise. I say, yeah, it's the word of God. It's inspired word of God, absolutely. But it's, it's Proverbs. 
You know, it's it's the way life works, and we're lucky that we have lucky. <laughs> um, in the wisdom books, we have Proverbs that says, "Here's the way life's supposed to work. Normally, does work. You do this, and man, you'll have this result normally." But then you've got Job. You know, you're glad you have Job in there because hey. Uh, sometimes it goes right haywire, completely haywire, and you don't know why it went haywire. It's not supposed to go like that. It's supposed to go like the Proverbs. But luckily we have both books in the wisdom books, and you have Ecclesiastes. It says you can't make sense of any of it. <laughs> so just serve God and don't try to figure it out because it won't add up. You just won't. So we're lucky we have in the corpus the wisdom books that help us make life, make sense out of life. But if you take uh, like Proverbs as promises, you're really messed up. I, we were specifically talking about uh, a verse that says, train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, I have one child who's walking with the Lord and two that aren't. They grew up in the same house. They heard the same gospel. I was the past, their pastor all their lives, and two of them are not. She says, oh, they will. They'll come back. I say, well, I wish that was a promise, you know, but that is not a promise. That's a proverb. And uh, so we've got to let the Bible speak to us in its context, in its genre, in its historical situation. I mean, we can't just make it up. We just can't. And that's what MacArthur does because I think he wants, I, I, I really think some of these pastors, when they came up with Lordship of Salvation, were looking around saying, man, the state of the average church member in the United States or wherever they were, it's really not that good. <sighs> and instead of saying, we need to do better discipleship in our churches, they say, well, the problem is that uh, we, need to, we need to front load or back load the gospel. Don't mess with the gospel. Just do better discipleship. Yeah, I think that and we've been going on this question for quite a while, but there's one other thing I want to say. <laughs> I, I think that so many different things we do in theology, and, and Lordship Salvation is, is an example of this, um, are, are kind of designed to excuse us for taking responsibility for other people and and uh, the fact is we are responsible to each other and uh, when we see a brother who's sinning we have a responsibility to that brother we have we need to do something about it because i mean especially if you're if you're a pastor and and it's hard work and it's and it can be really difficult and and it can be annoying and and frustrating and all these things. And, and it's so much easier just to say, well, you're just not a Christian get out of here. It's yeah, so much it's easier. Out. Yeah. It's a cop out. And, um, but the fact is that we, you know, we're called to, we're called to restore our brothers who are caught up in any trespass with the spirit of gentleness. And so, you know, we, we have to accept that responsibility. I haven't really looked at your website, so I don't know. I, I could probably find the answer there. But I'm just wondering, what kind of resources do y'all provide for something like jail ministry or uh, any type of training or techniques or just like Mr. McKibben had discussed about to uh, give tactics in terms of sharing our faith um, and uh, just to speak to what Mr. McKibben was talking about is that also, obviously, the largest player in our evangelism is the Holy Spirit, and that um, it may suit the Holy Spirit's purposes for me to look stumbling, fumbling, bumbling uh, at a particular time. Um, it, it may suit the Holy Spirit's purposes for me to seem heavy-handed 
And I may walk away from that encounter and feel like, man, I just really blew it. So I really don't know, uh, speaking to that particular situation, uh, where someone's head is, heart is, or anything like that. And so my, my purpose is primarily just to uh, present the gospel. And, I, and I'm, I'm totally convinced that we have to uh, speak the gospel clearly and accurately. And uh, so I, I was just really wanting to speak on uh, what uh, resources y'all provide and, and make available. Yeah, so I'll, I'll speak for FGA really quick. Um, and that's to say that we don't really have all that much. Um, and the reason for that is we, we, it's only recently that I've been hired um, as the executive director of FGA, and there wasn't anybody working for FGA to do things like that um, before. And, um, you know, basically as soon as I started, we had, you know, COVID hit. And uh, so, you know, we're getting the ball rolling a little slowly. But, you know, as things go on, you know, the goal is to be able to provide a lot of those things um, because we get requests for different types of resources all the time. And uh, thankfully, there are some ministries that do have a lot of really good things out there already, like uh, Charlie's Grace Life Ministry, if you want to talk about that real quick. Well, the, the same resources that we use to disciple believers in the church can be used in the jail as well, of course. And I do send books to jails. Inmates write me. And I always recommend the workbook that I have called Living in the Family of Grace because it takes them through the, it grounds them in grace by two lessons in John, uh, nine lessons in uh, Romans, and seven lessons in discipleship. It's a workbook form so they can work through them even by themselves and figure the answers out. So there, there are those kinds of things. That your your question was multifaceted though, and um, and it made me made me think that you, it seems like you were saying like, you know, how do you deal with people was part of the question, and uh, am I right about that? I mean, not only what resources, but how do you deal with people? And it, well, you know, it's a good question because uh, in evangelism we can't take a one one style fits all and. Some people you can be very upfront with and, 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 and hit them on the head with a two-by-four, and they respond to it very well. Other people you have to be very gentle with. You know, last night I was trying to get a feel for where this guy was, and uh, I used the word, I, I, was going to, I wanted to challenge him to read the book of John. So I said, I, I, okay, I just, you know, I've said what I've said. Uh, I just challenge you to go home and read the book of John. He said, oh, wait a minute, you're challenging me? You know? I, I, it was an innocent word, and, I said, and he, he was, it was like a fighting words to him, you know. So I said, "Okay, I just suggest you go home and read the book of John," you know. So his personality—you you, got to tailor it to the personality that you're working with. That that part of the, the question—I don't know if you were asking that or not—but it occurred to me that a lot of evangelism courses teach a one-size-fits-all approach, and I really do think you need to be careful, you know. Uh, all the demographics, the personality types, uh, everything needs to come into consideration when you're presenting the gospel. I've been looking at y'all's websites some lately, and did I not see uh, Larry Moyer's book, Free and Clear, as one of the books on recommended? And I, I suggest that is, I, I assume y'all can give a good recommendation for that book. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's, well, go ahead. You go ahead. No, no, Larry Moyer's materials are all very good. I mean, he's, 
He's been doing evangelism for a long time. He's he's been here three times over the years, um, and uh, so Vantail's a good a good resource. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if y'all you may remember years ago, we did a couple of messages on how to present the gospel, and I talked about the two circles. But I talked about Mary, Larry Moyer's bad news, good news approach, which is very simple. Bad news, we're all sinners. Bad news gets worse. Wages of sin is death. Good news, Christ died on the cross. Good news gets better. He died for you and will give you life if you believe in him. So it's, it's a real simple way to present the gospel. But, you know, I, I think you need to know several ways. Like every situation is a little bit different. It may be that I don't even do any of that. I just may go to a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.21. So, you know, whatever you think about Jesus, the fact is he died for you, took your sin to give you his righteousness. That's what this verse says. So you can do the gospel in a lot of different ways. and. I would say have two or three methods that you know really well and then improvise, keep it clear. I think it's good to be trained in, in one method to begin with if you're not comfortable yeah. or new to it. And so I, I personally uh, think Larry's is very simple to memorize and learn. So I taught evangelism last spring. I used his book as a textbook, Free and Clear. Um, and uh, I, I, I showed them that there's different presentations, but I made them memorize. Larry Moore's good news, bad news. You know, there's the bridge illustration, there's the two circle illustrations, there's the wallet illustration. They're all good, and and I don't have one method I use. I I just use whatever I feel like the personality, the occasion, the situation calls for. You know, if if the guy is really the or or person is really interested, I'll draw circles or something on a napkin. If they're not. I challenge them to go and read the Bible. <laughs> you know, if that's too strong, I suggest that they read. So it let the I, and I'm praying while I'm talking to this guy. Literally last, I'm praying, Lord. Okay, what do I say next? What you, you take this where you want it to go, and and that's just a big part of it. You know, you, you do you do sometimes need to learn a rote method. I think we're getting way <laughs> off track. You were asking about prison ministry and things, but um, uh, it's the same way though outside of prison. The way people get the truth. And this and our disciple. You know that guy last night. Uh, if he only knew how much of an illustration he had been, but and with that, uh, you know, in this country, especially in the South, we uh, may not realize how easy it is to present the gospel. But Bill, this is for you. I was wondering about in France. What was it like ministering to the French culture and the people there? Well, the people in France don't have the same religious background they gave up on the catholic church years ago i mean when they had the french revolution half of the country had been taken over by the catholic church they owned the land they uh, had serfs working on the land uh they had monasteries all over the place and they had serfs working on the monastery i mean it was a, really a lot of a lot of uh oppression being done by the catholic church on uh the people the two groups in the church that had the power were the noble, the nobility and the church. And so when they throw out, threw out the nobility, man, they threw the church out with it too at their, at their revolution, 1789. Since then, France has gotten worse and worse and more and more secular. Now they have retained a lot of their values. They have a real good liberty, quality, fraternity, uh, value system that I appreciate. There's a lot of things I love about the French people. But in terms of, of um, when we got there, they were about 0.1% evangelical when we got there in 83. 
0.1% evangelical. Now it's 1.0%. So we've multiplied nine or 10 times, and that's good. Uh, a lot of that, though, is by immigration from sub-Sahara Africa, which uh, they, you know, they're a little bit frustrated with that, that, they're, that God is using black Africans to uh, evangelize the sophisticated French. And I just laugh at it and say, oh, God knows what he's doing. You know? <laughs> but it's tough. What I, the main thing uh, that I had to do as an evangelist in France was, one, be patient, be patient, be patient. It's going to take a long time. And second, you got to provide the groundwork for the gospel. You can't just believe in Jesus. Well, who is he? Why do I need to? You got to know a lot of stuff before you can biblically put your faith in Christ. So you have to know who is God. You know, he's eternal creator to whom we are responsible. You know, things like that. You need to know who we are, where we're created in God's image. We are not just animals. You know, we're not. People say, well, I think we're all just like animals. Say, okay, if if you're driving down the street and you run over a squirrel in the street, it's got, that's gonna make your that's gonna ruin your day probably. It'd ruin my day if I ran over a squirrel. That'd ruin my day. If you run over a person, it's gonna ruin your life. It, you will never be the same. Tell me that we're not different from that, you know. And I, I just say you're lying to yourself. You know better than that. And then I go on because they're you know they're trying to flee this whole conversation that I have with them. And I, I don't let them. Sometimes I'm a bulldog with them. I you know. I'm from state. Am I? Bill, I'm glad you've mellowed in your old age. <laughs> but you, but you got to lay the groundwork for the gospel. And we used to do uh, banquets where we do uh, teach the different religions, and we'd say, "Who is God? Who is man? What's the problem? And what's the solution?" And you really have to go through those things and establish the gospel, the basis for the gospel. If you, you know, you can just. If you just say it in the middle, in the midair, it's, there's no foundation to it. You really have to do that. And when I taught through the Bible, I started um, in one church following some a guy named Trevor McElwain who went into a tribal area in the Philippines, found that people, they weren't saved. They were converted to Christianity because they liked the missionary man that had come and did so many good things for him, but they weren't, they weren't really converted. So he went back to the Old Testament and went through patiently establishing who is this God? Who is man? What is what is what are all these idols? You know, what is the moon? What is the what is the tree which they were worshiping? Well, there's created things made by God, and and He established it all these things, and then finally got the the foundation for it. And these people were saying, "Well, we're undone. We we don't have any lambs to offer. We haven't even seen a lamb. What is a lamb anyway?" They were upset about it, and then finally. They get to the Gospels and went, oh, he talks talking about Jesus, and they all got converted right away because the groundwork was laid, and the need was there, and the desperation, he got them dead to a desperation. Now, I never got my people to a desperation point, but I wish I had a, you know, but uh, that's what you have to do in a place where the foundation has not been laid. In America, it's less laid. I think you can make more assumptions that the people don't know basic facts of christianity than do now you know i'm just back here since three years so i really don't know that much yet and i'm i'm kind of in florida so everybody's old so i'm not dealing too many with men too many millennials (laughs) so you know but you need to figure out where the person is and what kind of information does he need that's the basis for the gospel before before you're going to have effective evangelism uh, approaching eight o'clock and we had um 
we'd said we would go from a six thirty to eight, and we don't want to wear out wear out our panel um, too much. Thank you, men, for being here, making yourselves available and open to be asked these questions. And, and um, but with that being said, if someone or else does have something else they want to ask, let's. Um, is it okay with you to maybe have another question or two if someone has something? And um, and I see one. I see someone coming down front. And um, anyone else have something you just really really wanted to ask okay i kind of have a two-part question so sorry but um one is it's about the gen z's because we're more into gen z's now you know like the, anybody 20 or below so i think that it's kind of like you're saying that they don't have that that foundation so one can we talk about laying that for the gen z's and two how do you specifically um, preach the good news, the free grace gospel to Catholics. That's it. Thank you. I might be the only one with a kid who's a Gen Z. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you do the you do the Catholics, okay? Um. So my boy's thirteen, and his friends are mostly Christians. Well, it's it's mixed, uh, but more Christians than not. And so maybe it's a little different um, for my experience, but um, basically what I'm finding is that Gen Z, um, they are so smart. It's just, it's crazy how intellectual these kids are at a, at a young age. And they're, they're asking questions that I didn't ask until I was much, much older. And they're questions that have to do with, you know, life and significance and all these sort of things. And they're able to figure stuff out. They, you know, if you, if you try to, you know, pull the wool over their eyes, they're, they're going to see through it. Um, but if you, if you reach out to children and you love them and you tell them about Jesus, they, um, there's, there's just something about kids that are, they're so often so ready to hear. And, um, I don't think that changes really from one generation to another. Now, once they're grown up a little bit, because some the Gen Zs these days, I mean, some of them are like, you know, maybe like your accountant or something like, <laughs> right? I mean, we're not talking about necessarily just children anymore. Uh, Grownups can be Gen Zs. And um, by that time, you've, you've got some, some different questions to ask. And I, there was a fantastic presentation um, at the um, at the uh, FGA conference, it was uh, by Michael Jansen, and he is a he is a Gen Z. I think he might be a really old or really young millennial. He's one of those. He's right on the cusp. But uh, he was talking about the different generations, and he, his um, his uh, state his uh, topic was why don't young people go to church? And he was talking about uh, one thing in particular that um, is is called modulization, I think, or mod something like that. Um, and how they, they kind of are piecing together their, their whole lives. They, you know, and when it comes to church, those who do go to church or are involved in church, they might get their worship by listening to worship music on Spotify, and they might, uh, you know, like a particular preacher, so they watch him. And then they want to do some good, so they volunteer at the, you know, the local food bank or whatever. 
but they're piecing it together. They're not going to one place or one church for it. And that, that does present a, a real challenge. You have to, I, and I think to overcome that, and my, my Gen, Gen Z friend over here can, can tell me if I'm, I'm right about this, but I, I think to overcome that, you, it's, it kind of comes back to the same thing with the millennials, that you have to show that, that, you're, that the community, in particular with Gen Z, you have to show that the community has value and that there's value in being part of it if you want to actually bring them into the church. Um, to get them the gospel, it's, to, in, in my opinion, that's going to be um, online resources more than anything um, if, the, if you don't get them when they're kids. So did, do you think that's about right? Yeah, okay. Um, Catholics, let's, uh, let's... Okay, ask. for Catholics, we don't have a whole lot of time. I could go a whole weekend on that. Two things I like. I like Kenny's circles. I love the circles. The circles are wonderful for Catholics because it shows you what sin does. It gets you out of fellowship. It doesn't kick you out of the family. I even draw a Catholic circle. I draw a big circle with a, a, a baptismal font with a, some water dripping on a baby's head, you know, just stick figures. I'm a terrible artist. But, and I say, now, you're, when you're baptized, you're put in this circle. But when you do a bat, you, you can do all the venial sins, the little sins you want. And then, but you get kicked out when you really need help. You're kicked out of the family because you really did a big one, you know, and you're out. And now you're going to die and go to hell unless you go to the priest and you confess your sin. Then you can get back in. And then you draw immediately draw the two circles where you have the circle that's inside the other one and you're in fellowship or outside of the fellowship. And then you explain that sin any sin gets you out of fellowship with your heavenly father. Explain, first of all, explain how someone is saved or right afterwards, but explain to them that once you become a believer, you're born into God's family and you can, you need to keep that relationship clean and uh, pure. And the way you do that is by, by confession of sin, try to do it before even God gives you the discipline, you know, like you, like your dad, you know, give an illustration about you. And then they're going to say, Oh, well, you know, cause they have some understanding of, of gospel, of things, and God, and sin, and all that, but they don't see how it all fits together, and that really helps them a lot. The second thing I do with Catholics, if I have enough time, and I have done this in a number of cases, and when I've said, can I, it's going to take an hour, can, I, can we sit down and do it? And I have a PowerPoint where I go back to Genesis, and I say, look, here, Adam and Eve sin, and what did God do? They put on some leaves to cover themselves up, but God said, that won't work. He killed an animal, and then he put that skin around their back, probably bloody old skin, and said, this is what your sin did. This is, you don't know what death was? That's what it is right here. How do you like it? Smell it. It stinks. It's horrible. It's bloody. It's ugly. Horrible. But I'm covering your sin. And then I think he, expl I think he explained that his son was going to come, and he was going to take away the sin, and that you just need to keep doing this sacrifice, which will cover that sin, until the Messiah comes, and you need to teach this to your kids and down the generations. I'm convinced that's what he did. And then uh, Cain and Abel, how did Abel know to offer the right kind of sacrifice? And Cain, he knew, but he refused to offer that sacrifice. God gave him a second chance, and he still refused. And then he went out and killed his brother. So, And then going down all through the, the sacrifice of, Abraham, of um, Isaac, that didn't happen because there was a substitute. And so you're first pulling out the principle of uh, an innocent dies in the place of the guilty to cover the sin. And then you go to the Passover when it 
you know, one lamb for a family or two. And then you get to the temple, to the tabernacle where uh, one animal is sacrificed, his blood's put on the mercy seat, and it covers the sin of the whole nation for a whole year. And that's the day of covering, the day of atonement, really, in French. In, um, French. And, and uh, Hebrew is Yom Kippur, the day of covering. And then, then you say, in the, the last, you quote the verse, John one twenty nine. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you say, now, why does that help a Catholic? Because in the Catholic Mass, you say that three times. And when you're an altar boy, like I was, you'd ring the bells three times, and then you'd say it again. And then you'd ring the bells three times, and then you'd say it again a third time. And it's something that's ingrained in the Catholic. They have no clue what that is. When they go back and they see the whole thing makes sense, and that it's all about the coming of Christ and that he is the sacrifice that was the innocent one that took the place of the sinners. And how you can see how the, the illustration in the Old Testament opens up from one lamb for one person to one lamb to cover the sins of the whole nation for a whole year and then to the whole world. But it doesn't cover the sin. It takes it away. That speaks to Catholics. So that's are two things that I love. One of the circles and the other one is this overview of the Old Testament centering on the sacrifice and how it, it broadens out as revelation progresses. And uh, then the verse in, first, in uh, John one twenty nine or one thirty, Behold the Lamb of God, whatever it is. One, uh, 1.29? Yeah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So though, that's briefly how to reach Catholics. And then pray for them. Pray for them, man. Just really briefly, I, I did have one interaction where I, I didn't necessarily have all that much time. I mean, I was, I was talking with a Catholic, and um, I, I opened up Scripture to the Gospel of John, and I showed a few verses um, that basically where Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. And so I showed this uh, young woman those verses, and, and I said, I said uh, what does this verse say about? people who believe in Jesus and it says, well, it says they have everlasting life. And then I said, do you believe in Jesus? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what does that mean about you? And she just, and she became a believer right there. Um, she ended up joining my Bible study because there's so much more that they need. So, but that, that worked. I, I used the commonality of you believe in Jesus and I just, and I didn't make the assumption, like in our conversation, I didn't make the assumption that she wasn't saved. I just was trying to help her to understand what it is that believing in Jesus does. And, um, and it worked. Um, I think, you know, I don't have anywhere near the experience that you do. So, I, you know, this was just a one, one time. Well, thing. the main thing that they need to know is that Jesus is enough. They believe a lot of good stuff. I, mean, I didn't need to know anything really new. I just need to know that Jesus was enough. So I've been doing a self-Bible study, I guess you could say, and in doing so, I've been trying to research some extra-biblical Judeo traditions to help maybe understand passages of the Bible more or sections. Is there any particular extra-biblical Judeo tradition that would help in whichever ones y'all think the Bible or passages or complete chapters or books in the in you mean like can other literature that uh, other literature back, or that just gives backgrounds or just, or just non-written like in 
the Judeo tradition um, on the Sabbath, we take that as they mean no work, as in you just don't do work, but they take it as a sign of completion. So they will have someone who is not of who is a Gentile come and turn on lights because they are, they're completing a circuit. So is there, is there, besides that, is there anything that would be like that, that you'd say would help enhance maybe a certain passage or chapter of book in a Bible? I, I don't know if I'm hitting your target, but you know, uh, his, like the historian Josephus, though not a believer gives a lot of the historical background and context for a lot of what we have in the Bible. And uh, there's another older book called, uh, written by a guy named Edersheim. There's a lot of bo- books that have written about Bible backgrounds that explain, like, you know, things, cultural traditions with, associated with weddings or, you know, washings and things like that. So I don't, I, I don't know if that's what you're looking for. And there's so, sort of. several things like, new, there's several New Testament introductions that kind of deal with the big picture of those yeah, kind of things, too. Yeah. There's a lot of books that talk about cultural backgrounds. If that's what you're asking about, and that if we understand the culture, it helps us understand what what yeah. they're talking about in the Bible. Yeah, that, that's that's sort of the question. Yeah, I would I would just I, I don't have a particular book to recommend. I mean, some of the ones I just mentioned, the Josephus has been a, a lot of insight through the ages for a lot of people, but Edersheim uh, gives some really fascinating insights. Uh, it's a big, thick book, and then there's a lot of lot of newer books about customs and cultural backgrounds. I'm not up on the latest ones, but I know there's a number of them in my library. I think Moody, Moody Bible College put one out. I don't know the title of it. Just if you were to go to Amazon, look at biblical cultural background or something like that, Bible backgrounds. Depends on how deep you want to go. Roland DeVoe has a two-volume work that is excellent, but it's... <laughs> It's pretty complicated. And the Edersheim book is poorly translated, and it's real hard to get through. It's good, but, man, is it hard to read. It's just not easy reading it. <laughs> There's also, um, you might look into a ministry called Sojourner Ministries. And um, I've got a, a friend, his name is John Cantor, and he's a, he's an FGA member. And he preaches at my church sometimes when I I'm, can't be there. And he, um, he's a completed, completed Jew, um, Messianic Jew. And the ministry is basically, it's exploring the uh, Jewish heart of Christianity. That's like the tagline that they do. And one of the ministries that they do is they uh, invite Christians into um, a Passover meal. And they do a traditional Passover meal and explain all the different aspects of it. And it can be, um, it's, it's so amazing how many different, um, different, uh, just illustrations there are in with the foods. Um, so I just would, um, I would, I would suggest taking a look at them. If you, um, if you want, I can put you in touch with John Cantor, who's with Sojourner Ministries. And it's, it's, a it's a good ministry that does a lot of those sort of things. And I, I, I have read a couple, some of these books. Um, you know, Edersheim is very good. Um, and there, there's a lot of great stuff in books. But if you want something that's not a book, they would help as well. Thank you all for being here this weekend and for um, answering our, the night.
and also for delivering the messages for our uh, FGA conference. And um, um, before I dismiss in prayer, does anyone have anything final that you would like to say uh, before I close this? I did in all that, but just thank you for being, you know, what you are here at Starkville and, and keeping grace alive. Um, it's so refreshing to be in a church that's consistent in its theology and not figuring it out or contradicting the message of grace and keep doing what you're doing. Stay faithful to the gospel, stay strong in the grace of God. And thanks. Thanks for your hospitality this weekend. Thank you, Charlie. Well, let us uh, dismiss in prayer. Our heavenly father, we do thank you for answering virtually every prayer that we asked for. Uh, when we were praying for the, uh, FGA conference some months ago, and we asked for uh, a good turnout. And we asked for uh, the speakers to to uh, have a, a good presentation, and we asked for your uh, glory and your honor to be elevated. And we have experienced the joy of concentrating on grace, and uh, there's just no replacement for that in the human experience to uh, to just bask in the grace of our Creator. And we thank you that we've seen that. And our prayer for each and every one of our families here in our church is that uh, everyone will come to a, a fuller and more complete knowledge of the reality of the, of the grace that we have in you and the righteousness of God apart from the law. And I pray for a blessing on these four men as they each return to their homes starting tomorrow and, and their ministries. And I lift up their ministries and lift up their work. And we pray for um, fruit to be uh, produced by the, the hard work of their efforts. And we pray for a financial blessing beyond all of them. We know that uh, this is your church and uh, Jesus Christ is building his church. And we, we ask for uh, provisions for the ministries represented here by these four men on the stage. We ask for a blessing to continue upon our church. And we uh, we know that we have to contend for the gospel, and uh, the devil hates freedom in any form or fashion. And the freedom we have in Christ is always under attack, and, and grace is always uh, under attack. And so we ask for your guidance for us as a church and your protection over us as well. And I ask you to lead us in the direction you would have us to go so that we could impact Starville, Mississippi, and our community uh, with the gospel in action. And as the, these men have challenged us here tonight, we ask for you to show us what, what tangible can we be doing or, and do we need to be doing in our community to show uh, the grace of the Jesus Christ in a way that meets human physical needs at the same time in order to earn us a, um, a better audience with those to whom we minister. And we just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.